critic Carol Kucharlitz of Variety said that the third film in this series is successful in providing light summer entertainment and a break from reruns. Production credits are tops. Chicago Tribune's Data Care observed of the second film that the leading characters may have high IQs, but most of the humor rests a few degrees south of lowbrow. And New York Times critic Lawrence Van Gelder claimed that the 1984 original doesn't do much for movies or nerds. On this episode of Ruined Childhoods, we decide the fate of Revenge of the Nerds. Which one will it be? It's the Ruined Childhood Podcast. Greetings, Starfighters. I don't know if I like that. I, you know, you got <laughs> every every now and again you try something different, and look, you know, it, it doesn't ever have to happen again. Yeah. You're listening to Ruined Childhoods. I'm yeah. John. That's Dan, who made that crazy sound. Is that? Uh, oh, I should have done it higher pitched. Is that Sounds how better. you? Is that how you would address the Greek Council? <laughs> Indeed, to the Point Greek Council. May I address the Greek Council? <laughs> they would throw me out by the time I finished that sentence. Yeah, right. We're talking about Revenge of the Nerds on this episode. Uh, but first, did you have anything you wanted to talk about about Bad News Bears that we maybe didn't get to or that you thought of after we stopped recording? No. No. I okay. don't. I, I don't. Do you? No, I don't. Uh, it was a perfect episode. <laughs> <laughs> it, yeah, I mean, I felt that way. I felt like we... Talk to I now, the, uh, now, I don't recall hearing us discuss the um, the gold commercials because that seems to have okay. had slipped my mind until we, you reminded me. I don't think I was even aware of these until I was editing the episode and trying to find just William Devane clips of him just saying his own name, which he does in these commercials for Rosalind Capital. I can't believe I just I can't believe I remembered the name of this company. But he has done what seems like dozens of these absolutely insane gold commercials trying to tell people to invest all of their money into gold, roll over their IRAs into gold. And they they get really nutty. They get really, is it really like nutty. a scam. Is like William Devane, like it would do a Ponzi scheme. I mean, no, this is not like a Ponzi scheme. I but. don't think it's necessarily a scam as much as I think it's just a bad investment. And it's funny because on the Rosalind Capital website, they have like a little ticker at the bottom that shows the current like prices, and it, they're like they're all going down right now. <laughs> so it's like, yeah, maybe don't, maybe don't buy gold right now. How was William Devane to know? How was William Devane to know? But the commercials are lunacy. And if you listen to the latest... I had no idea. If you listen to the last episode, 
you'll hear some of the clips. I put one also at the very, very end, and it's bananas. Yeah, but wow, just the the beginning with the ten dollar cup of lemonade at the lemonade. Well, that's stand. the one that I. That's yeah. no, that's one that I put at the end. I also I just sent that one to you. So yeah, I, that one's crazy. I mean, Devane almost cusses out this child. There's a ridiculous one that's, you know, that they're playing right now. And it's all about how it's election time. And he's like, hi, I'm William Devane. And right now there's a serious discussion about who our next president will be. A Republican, a Democrat, an independent. The future of our country is hanging in the balance, which is why, as a good American, I'm going to do two things. I'm going to vote, vote and invest and my money in gold, gold from Roslyn Capital. <laughs> Everything just uh, comes right around to gold. It's nuts. Great. Wonderful. Yeah. William Devane, he'll be the last one. He'll be like, you know, we'll all just be uh, five years from now, just a post-apocalyptic wreck. And then William Devane is going to live in his like palace of gold. And he's going to be like, you should have listened. Yeah. And so Roslyn Capital sells gold, like gold coins with like Formula One drivers faces on them. It's really bananas. Is a Daryl Waltrip like worth more than a Dale Earnhardt Jr. or Dan? You're saying words I don't understand. Dale Earnhardt Jr. Hey. I understand. I don't know if he's is he Formula One or just NASCAR. I don't know the difference. I don't. Oh, I there is one. I'm sorry. <laughs> I, I'm sorry. I didn't know. I those were the two drive. There are other drivers. I think I know. I could think of Danica Patrick. Right. Is another one. Those are names. She is a driver. She is Cole not Trickle. on a gold coin. Cole Trickle, who not is a, a fictional character, is not even a, a, a real person, but yeah, you know. So anyway, yeah. So just Great. as just as there is a difference between NASCAR and Formula One, there is also a difference between a nerd, a geek, a dork, a spaz, a dweeb. But in the eyes of the Lambda 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 fraternity, they are brothers, and that's what we're talking were going about into this the- time. I thought you were going into the synopsis. No, I was no. like, oh, I was like, that is smooth. Like, oh, I no, thought that's... that was just like the beginning of your synopsis. No, 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 no. Oh, no. I just wanted to talk about Revenge of the Nerds. I... Yeah. So before not, we get in. Not, which not not a far cry from Bad News Bears, by the way. Thematically. Right. In, yeah. It's in a lot of ways a snobs versus slobs story, which is, you know, something that we got into going back to heavyweights and yeah, uh, it's definitely a recurring theme. Um, Very similar to, yeah, to heavyweights. And Revenge of the Nerds is a, it's a four part series with two theatrical films and two made for TV movies. And I don't know, it just like has this iconic legacy for very, for all sorts of reasons. Some being just like it is this extremely memorable movie that people will always reference. I uh, good luck going on a college campus and like not thinking about it when you see some of the fraternities. Clearly, Animal House also comes to mind, but this is another one of those big like college frat movies. And um, I don't know. It, it, and also, it's very well known for the problematic scenes in it. Problematic scenes, problematic writing, problems. Totally. totally. Problems. So 
Dan, I, I think I'll just I'll just get into the synopsis for the first Revenge of the Nerds movie. Excited to broaden their horizons at Adams College, best buds Lewis and Gilbert are in for a surprise when they are greeted with less than open arms once they arrive at their new school. Immediately clocked by the Alpha Beta fraternity as nerds, Lewis and Gilbert ignore taunts as they fackler their way through the quad and into their dorm. As they unpack their clothes and robot parts into their new dorm room, Lewis explains to Gilbert how their lives are about to change, seeing as how they are now able to fully open themselves up to sexual opportunities that weren't part of their lives up until this moment. But everything changes after an evening of fire stunts leads to the ashy demise of the Alpha Beta house. Seeing as how the Alphas are primarily members of the football team, Coach Harris demands to Dean Ulick that the boys take over the freshman dorm, displacing Lewis, Gilbert, and a few dozen other college freshmen, dumping them into a gymnasium lined with rows of cots. As a consolation to the freshmen for their inconvenience, Adams College has lifted their ban on freshmen pledging fraternities. After Lewis and Gilbert are directed to the Alpha Beta House as a prank, they are humiliated and possibly coaxed into fornicating with goats. That's when Lewis and Gilbert luck into a much better situation. A lovely dump of a house that can house Lewis, Gilbert, and a large number of their brethren. Once they fix the place up with the help of their robot friend, the nerds finally have a place to live. But the Alpha Betas aren't okay with it and throw a rock through their window. But the nerds need one thing, a fraternal sponsor to charter their house. The one fraternity that agreed to meet with them was also the one fraternity to which they did not send a group photo. Lambda 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 a historically black fraternity led by U.N. Jefferson, who would pass on nerds in a flash, except they have a mandatory 60-day probationary period. The nerds attempt to wow U.N. by throwing a great party, and the Pi Delta Pies, the Alpha Betas of sororities, agreed to be the dates for the nerds. Except for Gilbert, who found love with Judy, a helpless dork in the computer lab. When it comes time to party, the nerds are left stranded. The Pies didn't show as it was another prank. But that's okay because Judy is a member of the Omega Moo sorority and she invited all of her sisters to come party. That's when things get wild. But the Alphas and the Pies aren't done yet. They let a bunch of wild pigs into the party and then moon the nerds from their truck. How do the nerds retaliate? They stage a massive panty raid at the Pie House, a decoy while nerds Lamar and Wormser set up video cameras in the Pie House. But the Alpha Betas take it one step further by burning a well-constructed effigy outside the nerd, now Lambda House. But there is nothing that can be done. The only group that can do anything about it is the Greek Council. And the chair of the Greek Council? Stan Gable, the head honcho of the Alpha Betas. The only way to get proper revenge is to take control of the Greek Council. And that's decided at the Adams College Greek Games. The Trilams compete against the Alpha Betas in a test of physical and guttural skill. Trilam Takashi performs in a drunken tricycle race, but they give him a performance-enhancing drug that negates the effects of alcohol. There's a bullfighting analog competition where someone sits on a barrel suspended by ropes and others attempt to shake them off. Alpha Beta Ogre wins that one. Ogre also narrowly wins an arm wrestling competition against an Omega Moo. But Ogre falls short when it comes to the belching contest and loses to Trilam Booger. That's when things get funky. During a charity carnival, the Alpha Betas and Pies make a killing in their kissing booth, but that's nothing compared to the Trilams who are selling pies. What's the catch? At the bottom of each pie tin, there's a topless photo of Betty, the head pie. Meanwhile, Lewis takes advantage of a delicate situation 
and tricks Betty into a precarious situation and performs non-consensual oral sex on her, aka rape, and his sexual aptitude convinces her that nerds are incredible in and out of the sack. But that's not the end. The frats and sororities have to participate in a final song or skit competition. Everything is totally weak until it's time for the Trilands. They perform a techie rap and dance routine that wins them the Greek games and head seat of the Greek council. Lewis makes a grand speech about how nerds are persecuted and then nearly everyone comes forward admitting to be nerds. Clap your hands everybody and everybody clap your hands. We lambda 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 and Omega Moon. And we've come here on stage tonight to do a show for you. We got a rockin' rhythm and a high-tech sound that'll make you move your body down to the ground. We got Poindexter on the violin, and Lewis and Gilbert will be joining in. We got Booga Presley on the mean guitar, and a rap by little old me, Lamar. We got Takashi beating on his gong. The boys and the moves are clapping along, and just when you thought you seen it all, along comes a lambda four-foot tall. So we will come on out here on the floor, so we can work our bodies like never before. Break. So, as Louis Skolnick, we've got Robert Carradine. As Gilbert Lowe, we've got Anthony Edwards. Uh, Timothy Busfield plays Arnold Poindexter. Andrew Cassis uh, plays uh, Har- Harold Wormser. Curtis Armstrong, the incredible Curtis Armstrong, is Dudley Dawson, a.k.a. Booger. We have Larry B. Scott as Lamar Luttrell. Brian Toshi as Toshiro Takashi. Julie Montgomery is Betty Childs. Uh, Michelle Mayrink as Judy. We've got Ted McGinley from uh, Married with Children as Stan Gable. Uh, let's see. Donald Gibb is Ogre. James Cromwell, credited as Jamie Cromwell, is Lewis's father. Um, who else do we have? Oh, John, uh, John Goodman. John Goodman. Is Coach Harris. And uh, Bernie Casey is Ewan Jefferson. So, Dan. Oh boy. Yeah. It, you know, it's been a long, it had been a long time since I had seen this movie and uh-huh. growing, growing up, I was much more familiar with the sequel because I right. saw that first. It was PG 13 and therefore could yeah. be played on HBO during the day. There you go. So, but I remembered in I think I, I saw revenge of the nerds for the first time in high school and it was fine. This was also the mid nineties. So yeah you know not not really aware of a lot of the the problems in it and no. not as just a couple of comments before i go and get into like my reaction i want to i want to first of all before i i kind of criticize the writing a little bit okay uh, just shout out how good robert carradine is especially because he was cast so against type he's wonderful He's really, really good. He's so good. This is kind of like I know Lizzie McGuire and everything, but mm-hmm. Robert, this movie, this is the role that, for better or for worse, defined defines Robert Carradine's career up to this yeah. point. 
Yeah. Like that's who you, who you think of. And I guess to, to a certain extent, like Anthony Edwards, though, he's definitely like e- with ER and the client, well, of course. Yeah. Well, this was 84. Yeah. So, you know, this was, what year was Top Gun? 86. 86. Oh, that's right. Yeah. Oh, wow. I forgot about An- that Anthony. I, I forgot that Anthony Edwards was in Top Gun. So Right. Goose. Yeah. Very, yes. very important. No, no, no. I so Top Gun is in it. between Revenge of the Nerds and Revenge of the Nerds 2, Nerds in Paradise, which yeah. explains a lot once we get into Nerds in Paradise. Right. But so Robert Carradine is is great. James Cromwell, by the way, is just an awesome human being. James Cromwell is awesome. And he shows up in every, well, he doesn't show up in two, but he shows up in three and four. Mm, Oh, okay. Yeah. All right. So even, uh, which I believe one of those is probably after he got his like Oscar nomination for Babe. Though he was oh, in, I think so. Yeah, was it a... was ninety two and ninety four. I think something. Oh, okay. Like that. Oh, so Babe was ninety five. Yeah, it, I I could be wrong about those years, but I, I anyway, believe it was around those times. Uh, so many great performances. L.A. Confidential is another one of my favorites with with James Cromwell. Mm, but, he's great. Uh, he's a badass who's been arrested like a million times for advocacy. Yeah. He got arrested in nineteen seventy one for attacking a cop who was harassing a woman. Wow. Solid in a subway dude. station. Yeah. So uh, James Cromwell, bad motherfucker. Yeah. And um, I, I want to talk just a little bit more about Gilbert, um, Anthony Edwards' character. Just like he plays him as such like a sweet, empathetic person. And, and at the end of the movie, even though Lewis is clearly like the main, main, main character, when they win the the seat for the the greek council he announces that gilbert would be doing it because he's like let's face it gilbert's the real responsible one here i'm you know kind of a rebel rouser well and that kind of comes back to my point with critiquing the writing because on this last watch i did i found lewis to be pretty unlikable and that is all like like rape aside well i found i i understood I found him a lot more abrasive than I usually do. And I found I was like, you need Gilbert because Gilbert is the one that people are going to connect with more. Yeah. Lewis is for I mean, I yes, I'm there. Are, this is made for an audience. This is made for the Lewis's. Yeah. You know world. what, Dan? I will argue that a little bit, though, because in the very first scene we are introduced to both Lewis and Gilbert. Gilbert, it's it's takes place in Gilbert's bedroom. He's, you know, in bed. It's their first day. They're supposed to be going off to college and, Lu- and Gilbert's still in bed and Lewis is there to go pick him up. And we find out that he's fully dressed underneath the blanket and he's just playing a goof. But before that happens, Lewis goes up to Gilbert's mom and it shows you that Lewis has this, I don't know, this essence to him that mm-hmm. enchants people because well, Gilbert's he's better mom, with adults. Well, yes, but Gil- yeah. So Gilbert's mom is like butter in his hands. You know, he is like, he kind of has his arm, like his hand on her arm and he like gives her a kiss on the cheek and calls her by her first name. Yeah. It's kind of great. Gilbert, come on, rise and shine. Dad's waiting outside in the car. It's all packed. 
Hi, Flo. Hi. It's a beautiful day, isn't it? Mm -hmm. It's going to be a great year. <laughs> now, I figure with lunch and two ARVs, we should be on the road approximately seven hours, 18 minutes, and seven seconds. ARVs? Average restroom visits. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I'm so proud of you two boys. It shows you, like, there is something really funky about this guy. And he, I think, is, I think it's kind of like, maybe an Eddie Haskell type of situation where it's like, he's just, you know, really good at laying it on, but where he succeeds and Eddie Haskell doesn't is that people don't see people fall for it with him. And mm -hmm. it's like, he, he's a manipulator and that's kind of how he makes things happen. Yes. He is a, an icky guy and you do need the Gilbert and the, the Gilbert does balance him out a lot, but I don't know. I think that still, I don't know. There, there's and like that quality to him that I don't think would work nowadays, but you know, it's not the, it's more of just his, his attitude. And cause the, like the other guys, like Booger is as pervy as they come. Yes. And Lewis, Lewis, maybe running a, a close second. And I don't find Booger to be unlikable. I think because Booger does not put on any, any facade. There's no guys mm -hmm. with Booger. Yeah. Lewis literally puts on a disguise. Yeah. Whereas Booger is just like, this is me. This is who mm -hmm. I am. Take it or leave it. And it, it's why Curtis Armstrong, who was by the way, the first one cast in the movie. Oh, really? Yeah, he was the first one cast. He was uh, coming off of Risky Business. Right. And was Better Off Dead after this? I believe so. Yeah, I want to say Better Off Dead was 1985. But so Curtis Armstrong was it was yeah, it was after yeah. So after Risky Business and uh, he just he makes it work. He makes everything like I don't know how much was scripted versus ad you know, There were some ad libs right. thrown in, I, but yeah, I, th I think that the, his demeanor and the way that you see him getting along with people like Takashi, even though he's, you know, cheating him at cards left and right, but like, you know, right. he's, he still finds his own special ways to, to bond with these guys. And he's not an outsider, even though he's not a conventional nerd. You don't get the impression that he's a particularly smart guy, but he fits in with them because he's an outcast. Yeah. And he doesn't give a shit. Yeah. He doesn't care about labels or anything like that. He just wants to have a good time. No. And I think that that becomes pretty clear with the treatment of Lamar because, you know, there are there are only a few references to him being gay. There's, you know, uh, when he says that he has a date for the, the, the party that they throw, they're just like, yeah, but that's with a guy. Have any of you guys got dates besides Gilbert? I do. Yeah, but that's with a guy. What about you, Booger? I've been out combing the high schools all day. And that's one of the few mentions of it. Like it's never looked upon as being, wrong or like anybody disapproving of it and that goes across the board he's just looked at as a nerd 
Right. And that's that's one thing that you can say in the in favor of this is that even the alpha betas, the the Stan and and the frat mm-hmm. guys don't they'll call them nerds and they'll make fun of them for that, but I didn't necessarily catch it's funny because even though I think this movie is very much about race and racism, mm. it, well, yeah. It's not, I mean, yeah, Lambda, 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 LLL, uh, hmm. but it's not mentioned other, but it's referenced. Like you talked before about the, how the alphabetas burn the, right. What? Yeah. It's a cross burning. I mean, yeah, they're totally. not burning a cross, but it no. evokes a cross burning. Yeah. And I'm trying to remember, was, did UN see that? I know that he clearly witnessed the other pranks that evening, but. I'm trying to remember if that was a different time when UN wasn't there. I think that was a different. It wasn't okay. that after no, because that was after they wrecked. That was after they won the competition mm, and right. the jocks, yeah, um, wrecked the house. Which apparently originally that scene, the 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 lambdas were supposed to be in the house and the jocks uh, like beat them up and literally throw them out of the house. So, but that was kind of, that was kept out. But yeah, there's that, there's the line like Stan says to Betty about like how they're, they're taking over and like, we don't want these people here. Right. Yeah. It's the same, you know, it's, it's, you know, modern speak today. It's a, you know, we're burning the suburbs. Yeah, (laughs) exactly. That's, it's the same thing, Um, which it, it actually brings up a question because it's, it's Adams, and I know it's A D A M S College, right. mm-hmm. but they're the Adams Atoms. Right. So was it once upon a time? Like, I wonder if this is a university that has kind of swung from being a more like science based college. We're gonna no, talk about yeah. that in a little bit. We're gonna we're gonna talk about that because <laughs> then the the one thing I want to uh, the the other thing I want to talk about with the the original Revenge of the Nerds in terms of. Uh, science and also context is mm-hmm. that it is released in 1984, which could you could make a case for 84 being one of the greatest years in movies. Not that I consider this to be a contributing factor. Well, there was that image going around of like the the newspaper from sometime in 84, which is just like the movie page where it's like all the movies that oh. were out that weekend. And wow. Yeah. Oh, I like I like how someone was like, this is faked. Star Trek movies didn't come out over the summer. I was like, uh, yeah, some of them did. Yeah. Um, including that one. But yeah, um, it comes out in 1984, which is the same year and it comes out in August. So earlier that year at the Super Bowl, we had the big Apple ad, the Ridley right. Scott, like 1984 Apple ad. Today we computer will introduce Macintosh and you'll see why 1984 won't be 
like 1984. And it's like all of a sudden it's like like nerd culture is infiltrating the zeitgeist. So on the Super Bowl, the biggest football game of the year, Mm -hmm. you have arguably stealing the spotlight from the sports is the technology and Apple. And of course, this was in production before that, but it just seems to, to be perfect for it just seems to be perfect timing right but yet it's also we're on the verge of the nerds becoming you know really the the enviable ones and i think that this is something that that might come back in the later films where Mm. they they actually you know or like lewis doesn't lewis like do pretty well yeah yeah we'll get in we'll get into that in a little bit yeah um uh, just some other uh there's that the racism a little bit of racism when all like the the lambdas all like the national chapter mm-hmm. lambdas show up yeah and the football guys kind of back off and it's like this is a little bit like oh here come the big scary black men i understood wh- the context but... yeah well i you know while we're on that subject though i do want to mention how while yes, this is about race. They seem to forget that when dealing with Takashi because yes, your eyes just lit up because that portrayal is, you know, there's a lot of extremely racist things about it. He's got like the kamikaze helmet on when he's doing the tricycle thing and they're playing the like children music. Yeah, everything about his character, you know, and there's definitely a theme throughout a lot of movies where they seem to forget the fact that, like, you can also be racist against Asians. And, uh, you know, even when you're trying to make a bold statement about one type of racism, you have to remember that there's other forms, too. Yeah, well, and I I think and I have a a quote here from uh uh, article that GQ did last year for the 35th anniversary. Mm. And it's Brian Tashi, um, who we also know from the Police Academy sure series, episodes th- uh, three and four. Mm-hmm. In my country, it is written, only kiss of beautiful woman can compare to petal of a rose. Babe. This is what he said about it. He said, I got so much shit from Asian entities, newspapers, commentators and groups saying that I kind of perpetuated the Asian stereotype. But what made it different with me? First of all, at the time, I was one of the very few Asian actors in TV or film. Yes, it was a stereotype, but we were playing real people. We had heart and the film had heart. I thought, fuck him, you know? <laughs> well, I mean, I, I, I do appreciate that he has a perspective on it and wasn't just like, I'll take any job I can get no matter what, it, you know? And, and, and really, what, how would it be different? Any, I mean, look at his, his character in Police Academy. Right. Very similar. It, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So at least it doesn't sound like he was like, 
forced into it and you had like someone it was like tony Danza and crash hey, could could you sell could you sell more oriental right yeah yeah and and, and- we should also mention um, John Goodman's character, Coach Harris, who is pretty much like the the older generation instigator, the one that really pushes them to wreak havoc. The Alpha Betas, of course. Uh, you know, the one that's kind of fanning the flames a little bit, and when they oh, when they back off, bit? when they and when they back off, you know, yells at them and and makes them go even stronger. Yeah, and I think that's an extremely common thing where it's like, you know, the younger generations, if they're teetering on the edge of thinking one way or another, it's the older generations that are responsible for tipping them in the right direction, which Coach Harris does not. No, no, absolutely not. And I I have to say, I, I didn't enjoy watching the movie as much as I remember enjoying it in the past for for the first half of it, just because I felt so awful yeah and i i think i feel like in the past i was able to just watch it separately and just oh that's funny and knowing they're gonna get the revenge but right i'm watching them get like by these just by these assholes well also the pranks aren't clever no they're just they're just they're they're destructive and mean yeah yes which and I want to talk in a little the second bit. one. They get a little more clever the, in this. The second one's great. I, the second one, I I have a lot of fondness for. We'll talk about that in a minute. But I I want to mention how like, you know, this is com- comes out not too long after the rise of the police academy movies, which is, you know, a series Five months. It's a series that's all about pranks. You know, it's like there's and I know there's been other movies before this animal house being one of them where it's like, you know, movies where the pranks kind of keep it going. Police Academy really is prank after prank. Police Academy is a prank fest. And I think that this is very similar to it, but in a, in a more mean spirited way. Whereas the pranks in police Academy, they don't necessarily do as much damage Right. Well, and not to mention the people who are getting pranked deserve it usually because it's usually like Captain Harris or or Mauser or Proctor that's Mm -hmm. getting pranked. So there's more of a sense of comeuppance because they're still, even though they're the ones getting pranked, they're still the oppressors. They're still the authority. No, it's true. Yeah. Yeah. And and that's what's what's fun about it. And uh, as Dan, you and I have discussed the the cops or police in training in the police academy movies you know they they are kind-hearted they aside from you know copeland and you know like the people the the cops who are you know the harris protégés or the mauser protégés you have our main crew who actually want to protect and serve and you know have empathy for people yeah except for captain harris and mauser and proctor but but they they are always trying to you know whether it's Mahone and we're getting on a police academy tangent I'm uh, aware of it we're yeah. gonna get off of it but when like they are always like oh come on Captain Harris don't you like oh come on Captain Harris get like chill out be cool like they're not mm-hmm. they still are like they give him a chance right <laughs> so totally. anyway well to come back to on another time at another podcast yes 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 go to podlisacastomy.com check that out we're we're working on it i'm constantly yes. thinking about it dan we 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 kind of touched a little bit on 
Revenge of the Nerds 2, Nerds in Paradise, should I give a little synopsis of that? Or rather, uh, one that's a little too long because that's how I wrote it? Um, Sure. Why not? And we're, we're going to come back to all the, yeah. the movies. So this one, it, this is a few years later. So one year after the Lambda 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 fraternity was founded at Adams College, a group of representatives are sent to Fort Lauderdale, Florida to attend a National Greek Council convention. Destined for paradise, Lewis, Booger, Wormser, Poindexter, and Lamar are headed to the fanciest hotel in town to show the Greeks what they're made of. That's where Lewis meets Sonny, the instantly likable front desk clerk who informs them that their rooms have been canceled. But the guys don't realize that the acting manager of the hotel is staunchly anti-nerd and doesn't want their kind to be seen at his beautiful establishment. This is troubling for the Trilams since all of the hotels in town are booked up, except one. The Hotel Coral Essex. Once they get there, it's revealed to be a total dump. Their room even has a chalk outline on the floor. The hotel's manager does everything to make them comfortable, and they accept their fate as temporary residents of the Hotel Coral Essex. Meanwhile, anti-nerd frat guy Roger decides to make it his mission to eliminate all nerds from the conference. First, he tries to scare them away. He and his cronies, including Ogre, stage a highly offensive seminal sacrificial ritual complete with a pool of gators, and convince the nerds to happen upon it, scaring them into stripping down into their skivvies and thinking that they are enemy number one of the Seminoles. Unshaken, the nerds make their way to day one of the conference, much to Roger's surprise. That's when he ups the ante and declares a physical aptitude test that all fraternities must pass in order to remain in their positions. This proposition, titled Prop 15, will be voted on the next day. This is where the Trilams shine. They rig their hotel sign so that it blasts hot oral sex into downtown Fort Lauderdale, and they stage a massive outdoor concert where they perform a Beastie Boys-style rap called No One 15 with the help of their new friend, Stuart, a former employee at the fancy hotel where they attempted to stay. Prop 15 gets voted down due to the efforts of the nerds, but that's when Roger takes things to a new level. He partners with Lewis to announce a new rule that any fraternity member who gets arrested is immediately expelled. That's when Roger sets up the Trilams to get caught with his car that he reports stolen. But when they get out of jail, Roger and the Alphas decide to prohibit them to stand up for themselves, and they dump them on a deserted island. When Ogre claims that he's not going to keep it a secret, it's too good of a thing for an anti-nerd, Roger throws him overboard too. But when Ogre flailingly yells that he can't swim, Wormser's the only one that goes out to rescue him. Back on the island, everything falls apart. Lewis thinks that Sunny betrayed them, as she was with them when they got arrested. Luckily, Booger finds weed, and they all smoke gigantic joints together around the campfire. The next morning, the nerds use their intelligence to figure out the coordinates of where they are, and when they look it up, Sunny realizes that they're on an island that was rumored to house a cache of military-grade weapons by a Cuban mercenary. Poindexter and Stuart fashion a metal detector out of coconuts and spare parts, and they're able to find the goods. Meanwhile, in Fort Lauderdale, Roger is making a grand speech about how disgusting it was for the nerds to commit such a heinous crime and not show up to explain themselves. That's when a giant amphibious tank crashes through the conference room and the nerds uncover Roger's evil plan to everyone. When they get home to Adams College, they induct the newest member of the Trilands, Ogre, who, after drinking the special punch, belts out a magnificent, nerdificent laugh. So, uh, we have... Robert Carradine back as Lewis. 
Uh, Anthony Edwards is back in a limited role as Gilbert, as he did not like the script, but was contractually bound to appear in it. So, you know, he had a broken leg, so he couldn't show up. And then he shows up in like a dream sequence and he's there at the end. Um, we got Booger, we have Lamar, uh, Timothy Busfield is there as Poindexter, mm-hmm. uh, Andrew Cassis is back as Wormser, uh, the magnificent and charming Courtney Thorne Smith from Summer School is Sunny. Released like the same time. She's so good in this. She had a great year. As Raj, we've got Bradley Whitford, who... I mean, at this point, he so he cool. did Adventures in Babysitting. Same um, summer. It was the same summer. Oh my God. Yeah, night, summer 87. Amazing. Summer Love 87. It. Crazy. Barry Sobel is Stuart, who's very good at what he's there to do. Uh, James Hong plays Snotty, who is a, a, a resident at the Hotel Coral Essex, who Booger is drawn to, because uh, Snotty is like the the Mr. Miyagi to his Daniel-san. And he learns the arts of burping and hawking loogies and things like that. And Dan, did you clock uh, one of the alphas, Tiny? Which I thought that Tiny was very funny. One of the like alphas who is uh, in Roger's uh, little clan is played by Mm -hmm. Tom Hodges, who you might remember from Heavyweights. He's what's his name like Sven or something like that? Oh, Lars. Lars, that's right. Yeah, so that's that oh, guy. Okay. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah, there we go. He cracked me up so much in this because the way that he played his character was so great. But he kept on being like, "I got it. It's so simple. I mean, I mean, they're nerds, but they're men too, sort of. And what is the thing that every man in the world is afraid of? I don't know, tiny one." Guys, you know, at one time or another, every man in this tub has been petrified that a chick is going to see him without his clothes on and see how small his dick really is, right? Jesus. Come on, guys, admit it. Yeah, sure. Whatever. Tiny. (laughs) (laughs) What? What, It's a reverse nickname, you know, like they call red-headed guys blondie and right-handed guys lefty. Mini Link, are you finished? And bald guys, Harry. Will you shut up? We gotta get rid of these guys. We gotta get rid of them in a major way. Uh, and then he wants them to call him, I think, like meats or something like that, which was, <laughs> I, I think that that was pretty close to what it was, which was our father's fraternity nickname. <laughs> um, and so he, ti- whenever Tiny comes up, he's got like these little like two liner gags throughout the movie and they're always so funny i i find this movie very entertaining it is i remember it i re- yeah. i did not uh i uh, straight up i did not rewatch nerds 2 leading up to this episode but i felt like when i thought about it i remembered yeah. so much i remembered courtney thorne smith mm-hmm. and i remembered the whole thing that the prank that the alpha betas play on the trilams yeah. Well, and, right, because that's the one that yeah. played on HBO during the day ad nauseum, and we watched it all the time. It's mm-hmm. it's so good. It's just it's like candy to me. This movie and oh, having ogre around is always a nice touch. Having him become a lambda at the end is kind of nice. It's a little Makes, over the top, but whatever. It made sense. Now, I 
I, I want to point out an interesting kind of like, I don't know, cosmic connection here. Mm-hmm. Now, Ted McGinley, mm-hmm. Stan Gable in the original Revenge of the Nerds, uh, was initially going to re- uh, come back for the sequel. Mm-hmm. But then I don't know why was replaced by Bradley Whitford. Now, for those who know of Ted McGinley's career they would find that this is the opposite of what usually happens. Usually Ted McGinley is brought in to replace somebody else in a series. So like married with children, he was not Marcy's original husband. Yeah. Marcy was with Steve. And then she, and then she married uh, Jefferson. I think Jefferson. Yeah. Jefferson Darcy. So she was Marcy Darcy. Right. right, Um, right. (laughs) So yeah, I know. uh, Prelude to the Julia Gulia joke. Right. The wedding singer. Sunday's a big day, huh? I don't even know your last name. It's Gulia. Gulia. Julia's last name is going to be Gulia. Julia Gulia. That's funny. Why is that funny? I don't know. But... Ted, and then it, the joke always was, now Married with Children went on for several more seasons with Ted McGinley, but most television series that in their later seasons replaced a departing cast member with Ted McGinley, it was like that was going to be the last season or two of mm. that series. And Revenge of the Nerds has gone on three sequels, I guess, and yeah. possibly counting, who knows? And it's lived on with its legacy, but Ted McKinley was there in the beginning, mm-hmm. but only the beginning. He's in three and four. Or, he does come back. Okay. All right. So, yeah. wow. Okay. Oh, he is very much in three and four. Less so in so, four. He's in three. I, He's in yeah, four, so, but not as much. So, all right. So clearly, you know that I have not, well, I've never <laughs> seen three or four. We're going to talk about them here. John. I will like, talk about them. Don't worry. Yeah. 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 So-, so Oh, by the way, just before we move on from two, I'm reading here I'm on, the, the, on, from two. on the trivia here for IMDb. Do you know who was offered the opportunity to direct this and turned it down? Tell me. According to IMDb tri- trivia, Todd Solons. Oh, I did see that. Can you imagine a Todd Solons Revenge of the Nerds movie? Wow. It would be so fucked up. Yeah. Cr- I would love well, to we see mentioned, it. We mentioned Welcome to the Dollhouse, I think, the last episode. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I'm thinking of like, yeah, welcome to the dollhouse, like happiness, happiness, storytelling. Like, reven- yeah, a oh wow, yeah, just Todd Solons does not pull punches. <laughs> I would like, I would, I would see a Todd Solons, uh, Revenge of the Nerds with Dylan Baker in it, just in any capacity. You know, he'd be in it. Uh, I think was he in storytelling? I could, I could storytelling was, and happiness he, mixed up sometimes. He was in happiness, happiness. He's so he was good in happiness. He's so he was good a, in it. He was so good in happiness that just the thought of it creeps me out. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So uncomfortable uh, movie. Yeah, so just kind of going through Revenge of the Nerds two, Nerds in Paradise. It, yeah, it's it's a very it's very comforting. Like there's there's something about it that just like it just feels good to watch it, or even just to like think about it because the scenes in it are just so insane and. I mean, clearly it's, you know, the mid eighties, they're the representation of uh, native Americans is extremely outdated. And, um, you know, clearly that would not happen now, I would hope. But uh, aside from that, there, there aren't any super problematic things. We do know that at the beginning of the movie, 
Uh, Lewis is still in a relationship with Betty. He like packs mm-hmm. her picture in with his stuff and then, you know, cheats on her with Sonny. So which is which is is interesting because the reason why Julie Montgomery or Julia Montgomery yeah. didn't want to come back was because the original script had her cheating on Lewis, which she thought went against everything that happened totally. to the character in the first film. So and then I know she comes back. She does in the series but it's it's ironic because that her not coming back for that reason then produced the storyline in which lewis cheats on her yeah so it's it's kind of funky but it tracks for lewis's personality and and what's also kind of funky is like i mean all we see them do is kiss but when that happens everyone kind of just like cheers them on and no one is just like aren't you dating betty that girl that you worked so hard to be with in the first place and do you think those guys cared do you think those guys i don't think booger would care wormser has no moral compass in this one we see that he uh has a series of fake ids uh mm-hmm. in which he uh purchases beer with an admiral's id which is he's kind of like so th- he's the, yeah the original mclovin oh yeah no kidding he really really is uh, except he's good at it. He's confident. Yeah. He's confident. Oh, well, yeah, they, they totally corrupted him in the first one. One note, though, oh my on, God. Totally. on representation. So what's interesting is in this GQ article, you know, they interview, I think, everyone from the cast. And Larry B. Scott, uh, who plays Lamar, Lamar, was interviewed. And one of the reasons why he went so so much for this part and why he really wanted to get this part was because he didn't want to play and i can't find the exact quote but he didn't want to play this like stereotypical like thugs and Mm, gang members he says here's a quote he says i got tired of doing these roles i'm gonna cut you man and what's interesting is he kind of goes he he goes from playing that stereotype and then goes into this stereotype which at that time was much more it was i guess safer and much right. le- or like it's not that people weren't offended by it but the people who were offended by it, that's the thing is like people are like whenever i hear people say oh no one was a no why are people offended by this now they were offended by it back then yeah. it's just they didn't feel they could say anything i i i do want to jump back to the first revenge of the nerds to talk about lamar's performance in the greek games where he throws he does the javelin and I kind of love that moment. So it's established that Wormser is into aerodynamics. So they've created a javelin for Lamar's, as Gilbert says, limp-wristed throwing style. Wait till you see Lamar's throw. How come? Wormser's a master at aerodynamics, and he designed the javelin to go along with Lamar's limp-wristed throwing style. The thing is, though, like they aren't really 
making fun of his sexual orientation. They're using it as a a way to incorporate other humor to get them to win win the games. And it, and it, and it, yeah. it's played really really well. I think that Larry B. Scott does an awesome job. Did I get his name right? Yeah, and by and yeah. Larry B. Scott also having a great summer in 1984 because he also pops up in The Karate Kid. That's right. He's Cobra Kai, right? He's Cobra Kai, yeah. Yeah, and uh, as we will talk about in a future episode, kills it in space camp. Yes. Yeah. Yes, that's right. Yeah. A, a, very, a much more understated character. Yeah, right. Yeah. Right. But no, he's 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 very funny. I love the the relationship with him and Wormser. I know they have such a sweet friendship. It really yeah. is, yeah. And I mean, it's like, you know, it's it's not totally absurd and and it's not an offensive portrayal. It's just I or maybe it is, mm-hmm. but I think it's just one that comes across as as a little as just like playing the stereotype now. Yeah. Yeah. Whereas then, I mean, it was like, look, look at Jim J. Bullock on Too Close for Comfort. Mm-hmm. Yeah. He wasn't really acting. Uh, right. So I I will briefly synopsize uh, Next Generation, Revenge of the Nerds 3, The Next Generation. Several years after Nerds in Paradise, Lewis's nephew Harold is headed to follow in his uncle's footsteps at Adams College. Lewis, now Lou, has decided to cover up his nerd roots and play Joe Cool as the wealthy chair of the computer science department at Adams. His wife, Betty, from the first movie, is a professor of art history and they have a lovely life for themselves. But when wealthy Adams alum Oren Price arrives at the school to drop off his son, the place is almost unrecognizable to him. It's overrun with nerds. Oren and his son are livid especially when they arrive at the Alpha Beta house and see a bunch of dummies saying that no one wants to join because Lambda 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 is the hottest house on campus. Oren Price knows that he needs to revert things back to their old ways. He sways the college board to retire the dean and appoint a new one. Local cop, Stan Gable. The Alpha Betas terrorize the Trilams to the point that Lou, who has become friends with Stan, knows that he needs to revisit his roots and nerd up once again. He helps his nephew and the fellow nerds find justice, especially with the help of the only Trilam who became a lawyer, Dudley Dawson, a.k.a. Booger. After a series of pranks back and forth, the Trilams win their case and expose Oren Price for who he really is, and Stan realizes that he was wrong to enable him. And it turns out that once he got to know Lewis a little better, he realized that nerds are actually pretty great, and declares that he is himself a nerd. So we've got uh okay, Dan, I sent you a clip of um of of Lewis oh. a, a moment with Robert Carradine, and it's like, oh boy, how how the mighty have fallen. It's some of the worst acting I I've ever seen. Incoming phone call. Hello. That's the worst thing I've ever heard. What about a beehive? What's wrong? Some vandals have desecrated the computer center. The acting, the writing, the editing. It's shot on video at a time when video did not look good. It looks like porn. Yeah. 
Yeah, it looks like porn without any of the porn. It's just yeah. the scenes. And so so also just to paint the picture for you, Oren Price is played by Morton Downey Jr., who has the biggest teeth in the game. I uh, we also have um so Greg Binkley plays Harold Skolnick. Richard Israel is his buddy Ira. Um we have a new batch of Trilams uh that include Henry Cho as Steve Toyota, who's a Korean guy from the South who is like an Elvis impersonator, kind of. It's whack. I didn't like it at all. Hey, wait, who's that guy over there? Oh, uh, that's Steve Toyota. Steve's the editor of the school paper. Toyota! Enjoy your refreshments, and thank you for rushing. I'd like you to meet uh, Harold and uh, Ira. Toyota, are you Japanese? Heck no, boy. I'm Korean. Why do you talk like that? South Korean. Okay. Yeah, that's... Okay. Yeah, and then uh, Malcolm Pennington III is played by uh, Chai McBride, who's great. Like, he actually is pretty good. Um, He's always good. Yeah, we've got James Cromwell back. We've got Bernie Casey as UN Jefferson back. We have cameos by Larry B. Scott. Sean Whalen is playing Harold Wormser now. But we do have Brian Toshi back and um I'm trying to think if there were any other of the original crew. I don't think so. Oh wait. No, nah, yeah. Yeah, I don't huh? think that um Poindexter comes back. We never we didn't even talk about Timothy Busfield really. He's great as Poindexter. No, and he has just one of the the most hilarious moments of the movie. I mean, he's got a few of them, but Yeah. He's yeah, he's awesome. Yeah, when when they're watching the the cameras and yeah, yeah he, he just, looks down at his crotch and just he screams. He's just nuts. Yeah, yeah, and it's uh yeah, so so funny. And he's he's really he's so good. Timothy Busfield is uh just I he's just one of those guys who you're. It's like I'm relieved when I see his name yeah. in the cast of something. It's like I'm what even if he's played a bad guy, I'm watching sneakers. I'm like, oh yeah, Tim. Tim Busfield's in that, like Field of Dreams. He's a dick right. in that. And it should also also be noted that there's a a significantly large number of cast members from the Revenge of the Nerd movies who have ended up on like The West Wing. Oh yeah, yeah. You got Bradley Whitford. Mm-hmm. Um uh, Timothy oh, Busfield God, is on it, right? Timothy Bu- yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I think there might uh, be some t- more. Timothy Busfield is on it a lot. Bradley Whitford, of course, was a series regular. Uh, I know I'm forgetting. I know I'm forgetting someone. I want to say like James Hong was on an episode. Oh, yeah. That wouldn't surprise me. He's been in everything. So this movie. Yes. Uh, Lewis is. Uh, he's made a name for himself. What's also funky about this one is like they do really weird. They have like a lot of really weird mistakes. And like they the way that they say things is bizarre. And they like repeat words like. In the clip that I sent you, Dan, there's this moment where they get a phone call that someone has, like, I think they've said, like, desecrated the computer lab. And then, like, two scenes later, there's like, oh, yeah, I heard that the computer lab was desecrated. Like, it was. Well, I think the screenplay was written by a couple of eighth graders, and that was a word of the week. And you have to use it five times. And I I will say. That was their final. Yeah. And Robert Carradine, when he's playing, like, the posh fancy ponytail version of Lou where he's trying not to laugh because his has the nerd laugh. Um, 
it's just it feels wrong but then as soon as he nerds up it just feels right again and his acting is better once he nerds up again it's funny um well maybe his acting is so good that you can tell that like this is not who he really is i know yeah yeah he could like the bad acting could be intentional yeah so this one i mean it's got like just really bad pranks for like you know, the, the alphas shave like nerds into the back of their heads, but then the scene later, all of the hair is grown back and it's like, you know, it's just really poorly done. But I will say nerds in love is pretty great. So three is definitely three is like the weak link in the in three the is the weak here. link. And I'm glad that they gave them a fourth one, which just so you know, as I'm, I'm, I'm going to read a synopsis I did not write. I just copied and pasted it from Wikipedia because I'm like, I'm not going to put in the effort anymore for this one. Uh, but it should be noted that the fourth one, it's made for TV, and it was broadcast on a Monday night Foxarama promotion that had a gimmick where it was um, shown in 3D and with AromaVision. So people got scratch and sniff cards at 7-Eleven that they there would be a little thing that comes up on the bottom of the screen where people have to sniff the card. So I didn't get the, I don't know, 5D experience of this, but uh, it was it was entertaining nonetheless. So also... God, how can we even talk about it if you haven't had the 5D? <laughs> I haven't even seen it, so... so I'm looking at the cast list, though, and... Oh, I, Dan, I'm so mad at you right now. So well, I, I here's the synopsis. So... Dudley, this is from Wikipedia. Dudley Booger Dawson is marrying his Omega Moo girlfriend, Jeannie, but the father of the bride tries to stop them as his desire to maintain his conservative nouveau riche standing clashes with his daughter's common interests and love for the nerdy Booger. Jeannie's father works with his loathsome son-in-law, Chip, the husband of Jeannie's older sister, Gaylord, to find a way to discredit Booger and cause Jeannie to call off the wedding. Louis Skolnick and the other nerds discover the conspiracy and work to save Booger's wedding ceremony from being torpedoed. In a subplot, Louis's wife Betty is pregnant with their first child and is in her third trimester as the wedding date approaches. Booger fights an accusation that he fathered an illegitimate child whose name is Heidi and introduced as Heidi Dawson. Her first name really is Heidi, yet her real last name is not revealed. Okay, by Chip. Jeannie's mom tells her husband that she will leave him if he does not support his daughter's wedding to Booger, and Chip's accusations fall apart when the little girl reveals that she was drafted from an orphanage to play the illegitimate child role. Chip's wife decides to divorce him and throws him out of their lives forever, leaving Chip to swear his own revenge against the nerds, while Gaylord declares to Cheers that her next husband will be a nerd. Booger and Jeannie are married, Betty gives birth to a healthy baby boy, and the newly married couple tell Heidi that they would like to adopt her. So Jeannie is played by the incredible Corinne Borer, who is like, I don't know, if there was a, a, a an ideal guest for this podcast, it would be Corinne Borer. No question. Yeah. Please yeah, get me for Citizens on Patrol. Vice, vice versa. versa. Yeah. She's great. Nerds for yeah. Veronica Mars. Uh, so her father is played by Joseph Bologna, who's awesome, who we've and Dan, I mentioned this to you that this this cast is kind of like the family reunion from Ruined Childhoods because it really is. He was transferring a six five thousand. Uh, we have uh, Christina Pickles, who was in Masters of the Universe uh, as uh, his wife. 
Oh, I was going to say, I'm like, Evelyn. <laughs> well, yeah, Evelyn, but yeah. in this movie, different in situation. In this, yeah. Uh, the Private Eye, Chad Penrod, is played by Robert Picardo of The Explorers and Inner Space. And, all, and Gremlins, too. All and, Joe Dante, pretty right. much. Yeah. And, yeah, so he's great. And um, then, so we have Lamar is back. Uh, Takashi is back. Stan is there as uh, a nerd. And he has the chicken pox. So he's just like laid up, but he must have only had like a couple days to film. So they're just like, let's just give him chicken. Maybe pox. he didn't want to do this, but he was contractually bound for it. So they just did the Anthony Edwards thing. Is that the story? Oh, I don't know. Oh, I, I, yeah, I don't know. I should, I can, he, look. I will but, say he puts, yeah. he puts his everything into it the way that Anthony Edwards did not in Nerds in Paradise. Um, and then we got so James Paul, Cromwell. Paul back. Gleason is in this, Paul, like, Paul Gleason, the principal from uh, Breakfast Club? Uh, is he? I don't remember he's him. On, he's in the cast list. Yeah. Um, I don't know. There's uh, an, an early appearance by, uh, I forget his name, Mc, something McDonald, who was on um, Mad TV just a few years after this. Michael McDonald? Michael McDonald of the Doobie Brothers? Not of the Doobie Brothers. Anyway, I uh, I do want to point out something that Dan, I don't know if you know this about me, but one of my favorite websites on the internet is called allbreedpedigree.com. Do you know what that website is? No. It I is don't. it is a registry of horse names and it shows their lineage. <laughs> there is a scene where Robert Picardo's character is with uh, Chip and they're talking about Booger or whatever. And at the end of the scene, he's like got his newspaper up and he's like, oh, there's a horse race going on. There's a horse named um, Big Booger. So he like marks it down on his racing form. I looked up on allbreedpedigree.com. There was a horse born in 1953 named Big Booger. <laughs> uh, son of Nurse and Joe Moore. And uh, yeah, there's Scott. We're going back all the way into the 1800s in his upbringing. He has a let's see, grandfather, great, 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 great grandfather named War Eagle. Um, a great great grandfather named Diamond Deck. There's some good ones in there. A great great grandmother named Grasshopper. That's nice. But yeah, Big Booger is a real horse that has existed. Wow. No, John, when you when you asked when you said, I don't know if you know this about me, I I immediately actually thought of the other question that I had about your personal background and history with Revenge of the Nerds. Cause I remember you going by the nickname Ogre. Oh yeah. For some time. <laughs> Just my freshman year of college. Uh there was a group of people who called me Ogre. I, yeah, I forgot okay. about that. I, I did not know how that I was I was like, I remember John used to like was called ogre but i couldn't think of how because i forget you, i forget how it started yeah. um there was i think it was like the people on my floor in my like freshman year dorm there we were having like a like bonding evening like in the, in the first week or whatever and um it it kind of came up that way but it was like only that group of people that i like never talked to after that Ah, okay. Mystery um, solved. Yes. So that is Nerds in Love. 
I rem while I was watching it, I was like, I know that I've seen this before because the way that Curtis Armstrong says nouveau riche pigs is like burned into my brain. Hath not a nerd ice? When you prick us, do we not bleed? I am tired of the reckless allegations, the snide snickering, the talking behind backs, the sly innuendos, the looking down on us. We are what we are, aren't we? We are! And we're proud of what we are. We are! We are not about to allow ourselves to be intimidated by a bunch of booger! Don't say it! Say it, booger! Nouveau riche pigs! There you go! And then there's a chant at the end where they all start chanting nouveau riche. And that is burned in my brain. Was that that was was that the word of the week that week? Yeah, right. <laughs> it's it's really funny because to, to the um to well to Joseph. <laughs> Sorry, I'm imagining I'm I'm imagining the two kids writing their their nerds three script for their like semester one final, and then mm-hmm. what do we do for semester two? Nerds four. Yeah, right. What's so, the word of the week? Nouveau riche. riche. Get that shit in there. So Joseph Bologna, uh, he to him. The term nouveau riche is like a, the worst slur you can think of because that's what he is. He's new money. And uh, mm. to him, being called that is just like poison. And at the end, he embraces it. I would like to make an announcement. I have um, been a jerk for this whole wedding. You certainly have. Well, I'd, I'd, I'd never been around a nerd before, and I guess... Uh, well, I guess I'd judge the book by its cover. Booger? I know you and my genie are going to be very happy together because you know what you are and you're proud of it. Well, I'm uh, sick of trying to be something I'm not. Tippy? I. I. I am Nouveau Riche, and I'm proud of it. Milan, if who I am isn't good enough for the Republican Party of this state, then to hell with the nomination. And that is the truth. The nerds have brought my man back. It's it's really funny. I feel like Nerds in Love is very self-aware, and it knows that it's totally whack. And uh, I don't know, it plays on that. It definitely does. And you see a lot of integrity in some of the characters, uh, especially Booger. He Mm. is, Chip is trying to get him to sleep with a stripper that he is secretly filming. And when he tries to expose it, he just sees him saying like, I can't do this because I love Jeannie and, you know, she's watching it and then it goes to um, Chip getting like spanked by another one of the strippers or something. So it's uh... I'm wondering what it is about Corinne Borer, because I'm thinking about her as the love interest for Zed in Police Academy 4, who's not 
not the same as Booger. Like they're right. they're very different characters, but yet also they're like the closest links between the two. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I think that she plays her roles with such sincerity that like you believe that this person would be with that person. I don't know. That makes sense. No, that makes no. Per- she's no, just that, such like, a I'm good. Saying, act. Like, what is it? And yeah. No, no, no. But it's that. Yeah, no, no, no. She's yeah, no. She is. She's very she's, believable. She's wonderful. And in Nerds in Love, like she really lays it on thick. But also, it's kind of like, you know, knowing that she was in Omega Moo, and that they there's this rich history. Oh, she was. Mm-hmm. There's this rich history of the Moos and the Trilams. Ah, the hell with my dad! No, that's exactly <laughs> what I hoped you'd say. <laughs> Again. Oh, oh, oh. oh, I can't tell you what it does to me to hear you moo again. Moo! In Police Academy 4, not to always be talking about Police Academy, but like she was she a librarian? She was a journalist. She no, was a she wasn't a journalist. That was oh, no, Sharon, sorry, Stone. Sharon Stone. That was Sharon. Yeah. I get Corinne Boer and Sharon Stone confused. I understand. All the time. I understand. Fantastic actors. Uh no, she was she a li- librarian? She was some sort of Oh no. Well, oh, she she was at the community center because she was community running center. the poetry reading. Yeah. I it was I knew it was something like that. So it's like you know that like must have been too important to her. She drops it all to be a citizen on patrol. Well, I mean, once she saw Zed, she was like va va voom. <laughs> well, that poem he reads at the reading, yeah. you know, art, art, blew a fart. Yeah. Hell so, yeah. um, yeah, the whole thing is really funky, and like, uh, James Cromwell like performs the wedding ceremony, and then like holds up the 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 like nerd baby who, of course, has like no umbilical cord and just comes out clean as a whistle. Does he do like a Lion King? Pretty much. Like hold up and all the other nerds are down on the bottom. I think that they all like put their hands up like around the baby. It's really funny. Simba Skolnick. Yeah. It's, Um, yeah, there's something about it though that just like, I don't know, it's fun to watch. Whereas the third one was not fun to watch. Now, do the third and the fourth ones have the musical numbers like the first and the second? No. Okay. Let's also... No, they did not. Did the third one? The third one might have. Yes, the third one did. And it was bad. Trilam doesn't discriminate, nor do we instigate a means to segregate. It is our job to facilitate a means to educate. We believe that diversity is the cement. The crazy glue, if you will. That bonds us together. Yo, Bullethead! Boss it! Here we go. Too, too high for me. Too high 
The fourth one did not. I, I gotta say, having like heard it both recently, what, what's your which one's what's the better one? No one fifteen. No one fifteen. It's no one fifteen. No one fifteen has really stuck with me. Yeah, no one fifteen is great. The um, clap your hands, everybody. Everybody, clap your hands. It's Lambda, 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 and Omega Moo. That's great. It's a classic. Do 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 do. Like it's great. Curtis Armstrong with yeah. The, oh yeah, well Poindexter with I mean their their production value and everything was outstanding. But no one fifteen, yeah, no one fifteen say, is I great. That's the yeah, that's the hit. It's the Beastie Boys esque song. The the Although, in ca- the third one it's Chai McBride and like yeah, I don't know. It's it's fine. Let's also not forget that the original Revenge of the Nerds has an amazing soundtrack. Thriller. <laughs> Um, so Thriller was on there. It's got there. Talking uh, Heads, Burning Down the House. Talking Heads. Um, oh, Queen, We Are the Champions. Queen, We Are the Champions in a, in a major part of the of the movie. Yeah. Uh, Swing Low Sweet Chariot is in there oh. to a, a different extent. Although I do love, okay, so in the party scene, Lewis is like, huh, UN's not having a good time. Maybe I'll put on something that is more his style. And he puts on Swing Low Sweet Chariot, which is crazy that he has that record in the first place the way that lamar looks at un when he changes the record is delightful it's perfect i love that they don't i love they don't say anything no it's just there's like great, it's just like he doesn't get it he doesn't know there's some great moments in there though i have to say how why did it seem to take hours for booger to remember that he had like five joints giant oh, yeah. joints Gigantic in his shirt joints. pocket and that those might help liven up the party. <laughs> well, also what livens up the party is the song "Are You Ready for the Sex Girls" by Gleaming Spi- by Gleaming Spires. <laughs> that one is pretty yeah. crazy too. Yes, yes. And then yeah. and then um, Nerds in Paradise. All the music. Well, Mark Mothersbaugh does the music, and it's all performed by Devo. So did he do the music for the first one? No, but they I have a Devo sound- poster, and they have like Devo esque music. The music sounds like Devo, yeah. Yeah. Like the opening that re- the song Revenge of the Nerds mm-hmm. is very Devo-esque, but it's not Devo. Correct. Um but let's see. Um in Oh, the that's funny. The uh Wikipedia page for Nerds in Paradise doesn't mention Devo, which is surprising. Um cuz what are they afraid of? Yeah, right? Um, but no music by Mark Brothersbaugh, but it, there in the credits it says that it's performed by Devo, uh, which is awesome. Um, and you know, it's got a, that one's got a, a pretty solid soundtrack too, but not in the same way. Like they had, they must've had an amazing budget for that first one to be able to afford thriller. <laughs> That's pretty wild. Yeah. How do you get thriller? Yeah. Um, yeah, the, the made for TV ones was, there was like no music in the middle. They've, they feel very made for TV. It's pretty, I don't know. They feel very hollow. And, uh, but I got to say, like, for some reason, the fourth one, they've got such amazing people in it. And I don't know if I'm just Mm -hmm. like, I don't know. I think feel like Robert Picardo is on a higher level because I just love the particular movies that he's in. And maybe he's, although let's see this, what year would this have been? I mean, this was clearly after he's done like so many 
awesome roles. This is what, 94 or something? 94? Same year as The Lion King, in fact. Oh, there you go. So, yeah. So I was looking at, you know, just kind of like what, because we know that there's been the TV movies. Right. So what next? And I know one of the screenwriters was talking about how he was adapting it into a musical. Mm -hmm. And there was some, some rumors going about last year about Disney who owns Fox now, right. uh, Putting together a sequel with the original cast. I don't Mm -hmm. know if that's something that's still in the works, if that was something that was just kind of bandied about because when Disney took over Fox, it was like, okay, well, what franchises are they just going to knock the hell out of? Or like a Disney Plus series. Um, Yeah. Yeah, you know, well, there was a a remake in the works in 2007 that just like got kiboshed even after like they started filming. And I think that they, so let's see, I think this is from IMDb Trivia. 20th Century Fox greenlit a remake uh, under the Fox, the then existing Fox Atomic label. And it was filming in 2006 with Adam Brody, who also co-produced Efren Ramirez, Kyle Newman directing. The film was originally going to be shot on the Emory College campus until college officials objected to the film's raunchy content. Production company experienced difficulties shooting on the smaller Agnes Scott campus. Uh, scrapped early on in production after studio head disliked the dailies. Plans to remake the film have indefinitely been shelved. And then there was a pilot, an unaired pilot for a television series directed by Peter Baldwin in 1991. And it wasn't picked up for a series. Mid-2000s, Armstrong and Carradine uh, pitched around a reality TV show. And it eventually happened in 2012 with King of the Nerds from 2013 to 2015 on, was it like TNT or something? TBS. TBS, Uh, yeah. yeah. And uh, Curtis Armstrong and Robert Carradine hosted that one. So... uh... What what would you do that hasn't been done with this already? Well, at the beginning of the episode, you had mentioned something about Adams College and the Atoms, A-T-O-M-S, being their team name. Um, and I had been thinking about, and I, I feel like I've been on a, a, a prequel mindset a lot lately, but I think that a prequel like Dawn of the Revenge of the Nerds would be good. Dawn of the Nerds, Rise of the Nerds. Well, I like the idea of two of these. So Dawn of the Revenge of the Nerds. Um, like Dawn of the Planet of the Apes. So got it, got anyway, it, got it. So I yeah. was, you know, I think a lot of people know that the first instance of the word nerd was in 1950 in the Dr. Seuss book If I Ran the Zoo, in which he uses the nerd to describe just a, you know, type of animal in his fictional zoo. And the slang term, this is according to Wikipedia, uh, dates back to 1951. Newsweek reported on its popular use as a synonym for drip or square in Detroit. And then by the early 60s, usage of the term had spread throughout the United States, even as uh, far as Scotland. At some point, the word took on connotations of bookishness and social ineptitude. Uh, there's also alternative spellings N-U-R-D and G-N-U-R-D, and Philip K. Dick claims that he coined N-U-R-D spelling in 1973, but it was 
in 65 in a student publication. There's also a um, a different version of it that's K-N-U-R-D, which is D-R-U-N-K spelled backwards. So it's used to describe people who studied rather than partied. And um, yeah, so there's a lot of lore of the word nerd. And um, there's even one word of, of a 1940s term called nert, N-E-R-T, meaning stupid or crazy person, which is in itself an uh, alteration of nut. And the term was popularized in the 70s by its heavy use in the sitcom Happy Days. So I think that a, let's say 1960s, Adams College, this is like 20 years before the nerds there, where like it is primarily a nerd school. And this is a time when school was school. It wasn't a place to go and party. And... I think that it's kind of a reverse type of situation where the the some some nerds who are a little different than the others kind of break off and start the or like open up a chapter of the alpha betas and I'm not saying that it should glorify the jocks or the you know the nerd bashers but I think that that's where we should start to see the division between alpha betas and nerds um, you know, in a his- it's interesting because oh, go ahead. Oh go no, ahead. I was gonna say like to see it in a, a period piece, to see it in a more historical context of you know like during the civil rights movement. <laughs> well, now that you mention it, yeah, I, you know, I think that there's definitely a, a way to get that element in there. Element, Adam. There you go. Yeah. So it, what's interesting is actually that was another. Uh, proposal that I had read was was a reversal, but not not a prequel, mm-hmm. which I think is a much more interesting idea. But kind of a like, well, now all the you know all the nerds, all the you know Mark Zuckerberg's and Bill Gates of the world, and like they're cool and well, not Mark Zuckerberg. Well, but. right, but also just like the the concept of being a nerd or like a geek about something or a dork about something like that is normal that is accepted you know yeah. like you have people who are you know major celebrities who are like influencers but they're really into like weird shows the cartoon shows like rick and morty or something and you know it's like the the lines have been blurred so much right right yeah so i I was thinking about it and I was like, well, where would, where does this story make sense? I like your, your origin story idea. Yeah. Just real quick though. I, I also had a kind of another one that's more of like a, the structure of like the princess bride where you do have Robert Carradine, but he's like an old man and he's like telling a story to like his grandson. And it's like about, I don't know, like a, 15th century swashbuckling nerd you know like something like that where it takes place even further back in time um and it's you know a similar story of nerd persecution the word nerd wouldn't be necessarily part of it unless they just don't care about the history of the word but so then would it just be like the inquisition like the spanish inquisitions you know too much dan you just gotta let this be its own thing I can't, I can't, because watching this movie, I just kept finding the parallels and the, the hints that like this, 
it's like one of the, I don't know, four writers on this movie really wanted to put in some depth and put in a message. And I guess I can't, to me, that's where the value is in this movie today is that it is still about tolerance and oppression Mm -hmm. and really fascism (laughs) because Mm -hmm. the coach, very fascist, like, all right, well, our house burned down. You're going to go live in the freshman dorms. Just kick him out. Mm-hmm. You need a place to live. They have a place to live. You're better than they are. So go kick them out. Yeah. It's, I mean, you know, the, I, the alpha betas would be carrying tiki, tiki torches in, in Charlottesville. Yeah. That's so I, I, I kind of can't help seeing, and it's like the bad news bears. It's this collection of misfits, heavyweights, same, same idea. Mm-hmm. Even explorers to a lesser extent, like they're the nerdy kids. Yeah. So it, it's, I, I was thinking, I was like, well, where would this make sense nowadays? And I thought, well, you could set it in a middle school and then you don't have the fraternities, but you've got like the clubs, which right. are kind of like the fraternities of a middle school mm-hmm. and, you know, like the computer club and robotics club versus like, you know, the the sports. Sure. So yeah. you could have this sense of, of. A middle school. And I think also because you have, because that's where kids kind of start to get disillusioned. And mm-hmm. at the beginning of Revenge of the Nerds, they, Lewis is looking at everything really innocently and gull- even though he's talking about, you know, how many boobs there are on campus, he's still looking at it with these rose tinted glasses. And right. I think that it, that, that a lot of kids go into middle school, like it's like that old commercial for, the uh was it for orange for for orange juice and when they're like they're on the lunch line and the kids like I'll have an apple juice please and the other kids like we're in middle we're junior high you drink orange juice mm. now I could just see it as this Lewis and Gilbert going into middle school and not actual Lewis and Gilbert like I would re I would make this even more of a like less of a remake more of a re no, not a reboot. I guess a remake, but a remake that is set in a middle school because that's really like to me the the prank. Everything that the Alphabetas were doing was very was so middle school, right? Yeah. So why not set it in a middle school? Yeah. Where at least you can get a little bit more like like I feel like most people have you know like middle school was traumatic, so. Why not? And then, I mean, I guess you run into the, and if Disney's making it, that's an excellent route for Disney to mm-hmm. go. Yeah, sure. But then again, it's like, you know, has it, has it already been done? Well, what like, you could also do is have like, you know, set it up. And I'm not specifically talking about your, your eighth grade situation, but also do a version of it where it's more of an allegory on co- colonization, where you have the, the nerds who are then infiltrated and attempt to, I guess that's what I was talking about with my, with my prequel concept where it's a school of nerds. And then, you know, the, the jocks come in and and take over the whole place. Anyway, I'm just trying to think of other ways to make it about mean something more than just a uh, panty raid. And they try to make the nerds assimilate to their jock ways. Yeah. And- uh, I wanted just to just can't. circle back real quick to the Nerds in Paradise soundtrack 
So one of the first things that you hear is actually a Devo rendition of Itsy Bitsy Teeny Weeny Yellow Polka Dot Bikini. I don't know if you remember that. I know you didn't rewatch it, but if, I don't know if that. Uh, yeah, it's while like they're packing. Uh, you also have the 38 special song "Back to Paradise," um, which goes over the opening credits. Take you back to paradise. Anyway. Um, oh, okay. That's no. I had another song in my head. It was David Lee Roth "Paradise." Oh no, so. no, no. Uh, and then I also saw that. Guess who wrote the No One Fifteen song? Guess who wrote? It's not Mark Mothersbaugh. No. Who wrote the No One? Let me see. Let me let me think. Who? Richard Marks. No. Larry B. Scott wrote it. Oh, yeah. Oh, Which okay. makes me like oh, it and him even more. Yes. Yeah. Ab- absolutely. Yeah. I'm glad that you know he had the agency to like. I don't know, put a bigger imprint on the movie than just playing the character, like actually writing the No One 15 song, which like for yeah. anybody who grew up with this movie, you know that song. No, yeah. On 15. I mean, I don't know any yeah. of the words. I just yeah, remember the chant. That, yeah. So, yeah, I don't know. I think that there's there's definitely room for something with this, but I think that in order for it to really happen you need to either completely stray away from the original cast or you need to use them strategically and not let them just run amok. Because I think that one of the problems with like the third movie is that they were just like, well, the first two worked because the second one was a box office success. I mean, it was critically panned, but like it did really well. And I mean, for what it was, I think it it did surprisingly well. But I don't know. I think that it was just like they were kind of hot shit and just felt like what we could do whatever and people are going to like it. And that just wasn't the case. It was terrible. It was really bad. No. Dan, it was really bad. Yeah, I mean, I honestly, like, I don't see the need really to do anything with this. It's, It's not necessarily a story or a plot that needs to be retold. And they're not characters that I don't, that I think need to be revisited. Granted, I, Curtis Armstrong is booger. I, I would be very tempted to see that again, but well, I also, well, what if also just like, you can look at other Curtis Armstrong roles, let's say, cause he plays like the school principal on new girl. Let's just pretend like that that's actually booger but you know going by a different name and then just watch right. that show and just imagine that it's booger trying to pretend to be a respectable person <laughs> i don't know i have a lot of respect for booger so you mentioned that robert carradine i'm trying to think of other things that he's been in at like this level and i can't really think of anything where he's been I don't know. Such a big character. Yeah, I can't think of of anything else really. Uh yeah, I can't think of anything else that I've really seen him in and mm-hmm. that's I know he's done other work. Yeah, he's done a ton of work. Uh he was in Django Unchained as tracker number 3. Same year as he was in Bikini Spring Break as Gil. I don't know. 
What a career. Oh, boy. What a career. I don't know. Yeah. So, anyway, John, you, anything else you want to throw out there about Revenge of the Nerds? Uh, the only thing I want to say is um, let's pour one out for Big Booger, who certainly is no longer li- with us. Um, born in 1953, a quarter horse. Yeah, I mean, Big Booger. I hope you're up there licking a nice chunk of salt in heaven, in horsey heaven. (laughs) All right, let's pour one out. Um, Let's talk about what we're doing in the next episode. Yeah, so next episode... Uh, I'm, go, just, yeah, I'm just I'm just thinking of, so the, on this on in Revenge of the Nerds they certainly know how to party don't they? Oh yeah, but not like Peter Sellers in Blake <laughs> Edwards' satire, The Party. Yes, and we are going to talk about parties and exploiting racial stereotypes. Oh, a- absolutely, absolutely. So if you haven't, this is one that that maybe most people aren't familiar with or haven't seen unless you are a big fan of Peter Sellers or Blake Edwards. So highly encourage you to Yeah, it, check last it out. I saw it streaming on Amazon Prime. Um my only disclaimer is that while you are watching it, read up on on it a little bit because it'll be really easy to jump to certain judgments. No, and I, th- I think, yeah, I think in order to understand, uh, also have a better sense of the context of the film, like knowing, getting a sense of who Blake Edwards was as and, as an artist. Yeah, and Peter Sellers as well. Peter yeah. Sellers, yeah. But very, that should be a very interesting conversation, and uh, we hope you join us at the party, for the party. With the party. And at the party, with the party. Good journey. Good journey. <laughs> In the place, here's the story about some guys that are bound for glory. I'll get right down to the nitty gritty. The triple L crew is gonna rock this city.